The first reading comes from Hebrew chapter 3, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 3a, and can be found on page 1203 in the Church Bible. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as, as, long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end of the confidence we had at first. As has, has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all, all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The second reading continues at Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 9. Uh, still on page 1203. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. 
Would you have that passage open in front of you? It's on page 1203. It'll be a great help to you. I should have mentioned John Ash, our curate, is at St. Matthew's Bayswater this morning, the church of our former curate, uh, Will Coderidge, so uh, he's not slacking. And uh, you can see the outline of the talk on the back of the service sheet, um, and it's standing firm in our faith from Hebrews 3 and 4, and you can see the headings there. Have you ever been tempted to give up on God? In my sermon last week, I talked about how some people gradually drift away from the faith through busyness or the pull of idols such as success or wealth. But this week, we're looking at something different. We're looking at what the Bible calls unbelief, where someone deliberately and intentionally turns their back on God. The letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were indeed tempted to do that very thing, to give up on God. They were facing fierce persecution, and though at the beginning they'd stood firm in what the author describes as a great contest of suffering, such as insult, persecution, and the confiscation of their property and even imprisonment, that's Hebrews 10, although they'd stood firm in the face of all of that, now they were in danger of throwing it all away. Unbelief can be triggered by a number of things. It can happen when we face difficulties, such as financial pressures, when the comfortable life someone had expected is taken away by fraudulent mis-selling. It can happen when a marriage fails, when a husband or wife walk out, and the resulting brokenness and pain leaves lasting damage to the faith of the one left behind. Sometimes it can happen when a family member is stricken by a serious illness, particularly as I know in one case with the father of a six-year-old boy who died of leukemia. And of course, this Monday, we heard of Sarah's death, a young mother who is very much part of our church family. And I have no doubt that some of you are asking this question, where is God in all of this? How could God let that happen? And the temptation may be to turn our backs on God. The recipients of this letter were, as I said earlier, similarly tempted. How does the writer respond? He doesn't pull his punches. He warns them about the danger of such a situation, but he doesn't leave it there, for he finishes, as we shall see, with a glorious call to approach God's throne and find in him, however difficult the situation, all we will ever need. So turning to chapter 3, note how it begins. Look at the first verse. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. And the writer starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, in view of all he's just taught about the victory of Jesus over death and sin, in view of all that, he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. It's how he started the letter, with a reminder of Jesus in all his majesty, and it's how he continues all the way through. However tough your life may be, whatever difficulties you face today, don't dwell on them, but fix your thoughts on Jesus. That will put things into perspective. And having encouraged them to do that, the writer moves on to my first point, and it's the warning. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion 
during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now the writer here refers to an Old Testament story with which the Jewish believers would have been very familiar. And he uses this story as a basis for his warning. And you can read about it in more detail in Numbers 13 and 14. Moses sent a small group of men to explore Canaan, the promised land, and they reported back that the land flowed with milk and honey. I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent. I think it probably, for me, would be cheese and wine. But, and there was a but, the inhabitants were powerful, the cities large and fortified. And then the grumbling began. Because of these apparent difficulties... If only we died in Egypt or in this desert, wouldn't it be better for us than to go back to Egypt? Actually, no. Their ingratitude and failure to remember the many miracles God had done for them in rescuing them from a life of slavery under a cruel pharaoh is truly shocking. How could it be better to go back to Egypt? And two of those sent into Canaan, Joshua and Caleb, responded differently. They begged the people to go forward, to enter the promised land, the land that God had promised them, in spite of these difficulties. The people refused to listen to their wise words. On the contrary, they rebelled against their chosen leaders, Moses and Aaron, and ultimately, of course, rebelled against God himself. And God vowed that as a result of their rebellion and disbelief in his word, not one of them would enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. And that is exactly what happened. What a terrible, terrible tragedy. Having reminded them of these events, the writer to the Hebrews now applies it directly to his listeners. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Do you see the progression? Sin deceives people into thinking they know better than God. God is wrong. They're right. They willfully refuse to believe him. Their hearts become hardened against God. They turn away from him. The deceitfulness of sin is a common experience Newsnight broadcast an interview with a senior executive soon after the Enron Corporation collapsed in 2001. She described how when she first went to work for this then hugely admired firm, there was a business practice that she'd been taught at business school was wrong. So the first time she came across it, she was shocked. The second time she said to herself, well, if Enron approves, it's probably okay. The third time she said to herself, everyone here is doing it, why worry? And although the Enron collapse happened some years ago now, I'm sure that attitude is not entirely extinct in the city today. Do you see how that executive's heart became hardened to what she knew to be wrong? Have you realized that unbelief is a sin, a sin so great it can prevent a person entering 
the Christian's promised land of heaven, verse 19 of chapter 3. I used to think that belief was something some people had and others didn't. It sort of dropped on you as from heaven. But now I know that belief is a decision. It's a conscious act of the will. You decide you're going to believe God. You decide you're going to take him at his word. And having looked at all you know about God's character, you're not going to allow challenges and difficulties to break your trust in him. What is that African saying we say sometimes? God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. God is good because that's his character. And you know how deeply he cares for you, for the cross tells you that. He allowed his own son, Jesus, to die a terrible, humiliating death in your place for your sin and mine. It's a bit like love and marriage. You meet someone, you consider from the evidence you have what they're really like, and then you decide you're going to love them for the rest of your life. Real love, as opposed to euphoric feelings, is a conscious decision. So when a bride and groom are asked on their wedding day, they reply, I will. We don't say, how are you feeling? We say, what have you decided? I will take this man to be my husband. I will take this woman to be my wife. And likewise, faith is a conscious decision to believe. Unbelief is the opposite, a settled, firm decision not to believe. The Israelites consciously refused to believe God about the promised land, despite all the evidence they had in the past of his care for them, let alone the daily demonstrations of his power and trustworthiness. All that manner, that provision. Now, at this point, please note Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Shall I say that again? Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is what you experience when your faith may wobble a bit. And we've all had those moments. To quote Os Guinness, doubt is faith in two minds. I like that. Doubt is faith in two minds. It's not unbelief. Back to the passage. Verse 13, beware of unbelief, that settled conscious decision, says the writer to his listeners. And because we're all vulnerable, he adds, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's really good to have two or three Christian friends with whom we can really be honest if we feel our faith wobble. That's actually what St. Michael's is for. Over the coffee... We can say, how's your faith? Wobbling? I'm going to pray for you. Let's meet next week. Are you facing some insurmountable difficulty? Are you in danger of turning away from God? If you are, take note of the warning in this chapter. It's terribly serious. And at the same time, remember God's goodness, God's faithfulness to you in the past, when your prayers with God's help have overcome what seemed then like mighty, mighty mountains. God wants to save us from the consequences of unbelief. We move swiftly on to my second point, which is the promise. Chapter 4. 
Rest is something our society knows little about. An article in the Financial Times a few years ago said this, it's barely 6.30 in the morning, your stress levels are rising. You're late for a breakfast meeting, your cell phone is ringing, your pager is, keeping, is beeping, that you can see how old the article is. You have 35 messages in your inbox and 10 voicemails. Well, for some of you, it's probably 100 messages in your inbox, uh, uh, at least, and people don't bother with voicemails anymore. My daughters don't bother. I leave a message and they don't listen to it, they just know I've rung. You rang? Did you listen to my voicemail? No. It feels like you're a hamster in a wheel, getting nowhere fast, trying vainly to get somewhere. That feeling of running up a down escalator. Have you ever had that? It's therefore interesting that God uses the term rest in chapter 4 to describe heaven. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The rest that the people of Israel enjoyed when they entered Canaan with Joshua was only a temporal, temporary experience. The full experience of rest would not come in this life, but later. God's promise is that anyone who turns to Christ is guaranteed entry into that eternal rest that we call heaven. And it can only be experienced, chapter 4, verse 2, by faith, not by our own efforts, but the evidence of that faith is the ability to persevere in the end. Look back to chapter 3, verse 14. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. But note another warning, chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, the opportunity to enter into that rest will not be there forever. It's an opportunity that should be seized today. You know, Churchill, action this day. You see, the Christian's ultimate rest is in heaven. But there is a sense in which we can enjoy the rest of heaven here and now. We can have it, we can have it all. Jesus talked about it, you remember. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Rest for your souls. That is the birthright of every Christian. Christians who are living in that rest are neither frenzied in their activity nor fatigued with doing nothing. They are, to use Gordon MacDonald's phrase, living not as driven people, but as called people. They march to a different drummer. And because of that, they are not thrown by difficulties or even tragedy. They know that even when we do not understand God's ways, we do know that God is good. Other people want to know how that's possible. That is evidenced by the phenomenal search for what is known as well-being. As commentator George Guthrie says, in a culture which leaves the fragmented, 
the fragile, the fatigued in its wake, the church has the phenomenal opportunity of pointing people to the ultimate land of promise and spiritual being. To the ultimate land of promise and spiritual well-being. They're looking in the wrong place. So we finally come to my third point. It's the channel. The channel. How do we learn about this eternal rest? How do we enter it? Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. For the word of God is a living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The Bible is that channel. God's word is not dead, not an out-of-date communication from another era, It's living and active. It can change people's lives forever due to its dynamic power. It's sharp and penetrates. Somebody was given a Bible once. They'd never read it before. And they said, I don't like your book. It pricks me. No one can escape its thrust like a soldier who strikes an opponent with a two-edged sword. The opponent might survive the downward thrust of one blow, but not the upward thrust of the second edge. God's word penetrates to the very depths of a person's heart and soul. We can't hide anything from his searching gaze. Perhaps he's speaking even now. It's therefore vital we have regular exposure to God's word through sermons, personal study, and in small groups. I always smile when someone says, I can't be there on Sunday, I'm so sorry about that. I say, it's on the website. Hear the sermon on the website. They look a bit confused. I try and remember to see them next time. Did you hear it on the website? You can't escape. You see, the writer knows that his listeners are discouraged because of the persecution they've experienced. Incidentally, we do not face persecution in this country. We face difficulties as Christians, but not persecution with our lives at stake, as many do even now. He knows that they're in danger of slipping in their faith. He knows, too, he's been saying some difficult, even painful things to them. So he exhorts them not to give up, to hold firmly to the faith, verse 14. And the Greek verb, and this is rather lovely, for hold firmly, krateo, has the idea of grasping or clinging on to someone, clinging as desperately as the lame man clung to Peter and John in Acts 3. Isn't that lovely? Hang on. Cling on. But the writer doesn't just exhort them to hold firmly to the faith. He reminds them, and this is the best bit, that they are not alone. In the last two verses of this chapter, he sets out some of the most glorious words in all of Scripture. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The writer reminds them that in Jesus they have a high priest 
who is the one and only mediator between God and humanity, and he has been tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. He knows what it's like. We cannot ever say, God doesn't understand. He's rather distant and remote. In Jesus, he absolutely understands. He was tempted to doubt God's power. He was tempted to doubt God's word. He was tempted to doubt God's goodness. You can read all about that in his temptations in Matthew 4 or Luke 4. He can really sympathize. Jesus can really sympathize with our weaknesses and our struggles, especially when we're tempted to give up on God. So then, the writer says, let us come to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that God will send all the powers of heaven to help us, mercy for the sins we have committed, grace to stand against all that Satan may throw at us. You see, there's a war on, and the war is for our souls. Satan, whom Jesus described in John 10, this is Jesus' description, as the thief who comes to steal kill and destroy is out to destroy our faith and to steal our joy when tragedy hits we can either listen to Satan telling us that God is not good or we can listen to Jesus who promised to give us life in all its fullness and tragically There are some, such as the people I mentioned at the beginning, who in their time of deepest need have turned their backs on God. The one person who can help them. But history is full of the glorious stories of Christians who have clung to God when life seemed at its most dark. Joni Erickson Tada, the quadriplegic, whom God did not heal, but who has inspired millions through her story of struggle and faith. The true story again of Betsy Ten Boom, the Dutch woman imprisoned with her sister Corrie in a concentration camp because she and her family hid Jews from the Nazis. And it was Betsy who, as she was dying in the camp, said words that I'm going to leave with you this morning, words that we could all live by. And they sum up all that we've been considering this morning. Corrie, if you ever get out of this place, tell them, however deep the pit, God is deeper still. However deep the pit, God is deeper still. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you with all our hearts that you have given us Jesus who understands exactly what we're facing because he faced it too. Thank you that he is able to help us when we're tempted, tempted in all sorts of ways, tempted above all else to turn our backs on you. Thank you in moments of suffering, tragedy, sadness, difficulty, Your love, expressed in the cross, is deeper than any pit. Your love is deeper still. Amen.